Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, hello, madam. You are muted. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Riffs. Uh, we are here with uh, David Cervantes, or David Cervantes, as I would say. Sure. Um, uh, but before we do begin, let's do the uh, regular disclaimer that I think Adam has memorized at this point and I have not. So I want you to go ahead. Yeah, this session is for educational and informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be construed in any way as advice. For advice on any of the topics we cover tonight, please consult your financial advisor. Um, and I'm super excited to have David on because we're going to talk about uh, zero delta vol selling and meme stock strategies, right, David? <laughs> totally, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, we're gonna. Uh, David's passion um, is uh, is in macro and asset allocation and and investing, and so uh, we're gonna spend most of our time there. But before we get started, maybe David, just give us a little bit of background on um, how you came to be in your current position. Sure. Um, before we get started, I'd just, just uh, give a, a shout out. Thank you to my good friend, Mike Harris. Uh, we're good uh, Twitter friends, talk, chat a lot. And he's actually the one that introduced us um, and put this, helped put this together. So thanks a lot, Mike Harris. Um, so uh, my name is David Cervantes. I'm the founder of Pinebrook Capital Management. 
Uh, Pine Brook's my uh, personal vehicle for, fam- for managing uh, fam- some family assets as well as assets of a few partners. Uh, prior to starting uh, Pine Brook, I was at uh, Morgan Stanley. I was in fixed income um, middle market sales covering Latin America. So I spent a lot of time in, in South America, uh, predominantly in uh, Argentina, Peru, uh, Colombia, a little bit of Chile as well. Uh, part of that, I was at um, uh, UBS, uh, both after grad school and before graduate school. Uh, I was in their cross-asset uh, sales team, also covering uh, the offshore middle market uh, space. And uh, part of that, uh, I got my start at uh, the J.P. Morgan Private Bank, started as an emerging market fixed income sales trader, then went to cross-asset sales there. Uh, first job out of college was with Wells Fargo. I went through a credit training program. Uh, so I am, or I was credit trained. I don't know how much of that I, I still remember, but uh, I did go through their program. And uh, finally, I am a UC Santa Barbara alum and University of Wisconsin alum as well for graduate school. Uh, so go Gauchos, go Badgers. And uh, here we are. Awesome. And um, I think... Mostly, we and others may have gotten to know you from Twitter, where you do share your your views um, on a fairly regular basis. And my view is that your um, the angle at which you approach um, macro is uh, is a little different than what we see from from a lot of the other uh, macro analysts. So, I thought it might be useful for us to start off. For you to just, what is the sort of etymology of your of your macro framework? You know, how did you how did you come at macro, and why do you think that your framework um, may be a little bit different than than many of the other macro strategists that people follow? Yeah. So, I'm, first and foremost, I'm not, I'm not a trained economist. Obviously, I have a finance background and went to you know business school and have an undergraduate degree in economics, but I'm not a trained economist. So um, a lot of my um, macro insights are, I would say, empirical, which is code for the school of hard knocks, doing, learning through doing and, and spending a lot of time doing it, making a lot of mistakes and knowing what not to do primarily. You know, what, what to do is secondary, what not to do is, is primary because that involves you know, uh, loss for or potential for for loss. So, I would it's say a much longer so, list too. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say first and foremost, I'm, I'm less theoretical and more of an empiricist um, versus your traditional um, strategist that has formal economics training and super duper high level maths. They tend to be um, uh, heavy in the theory. Now, that's not to say I don't appreciate theory. In fact, um, as, as we, when we chat, as we get more into our chat, uh, I will rely heavily on theory, but um, the, the theory will have empirical basis for it. Um, so that's probably, um, I'd say, what differentiates me from your typical um, macro strategist, uh, particularly on Twitter. Well, Paul Samuelson would have something to say. I think I recall reading, I think it was Samuelson, maybe I'm slandering the wrong economist, but I recall that Samuelson once said that the validity of an idea uh, is in no way based on whether we observe uh, what we expect empirically, but rather on whether the 
theory is internally consistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, well, unfor unfortunately, you know, that can get you in trouble in, in uh, risk markets. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I'll yeah, stick, totally, I'll stick with uh, being an empiricist and, and you know, um, yeah, and go that route. So, right. So, so how does an empiricist approach macro in a way that um, maybe, cause I know that there are um, many trained economists now who do focus pretty intently on the empirical data. So, um, but I, I happen to believe that having not been uh, educated in the canon of neoclassical economics or the traditional um, economics canon does give you, um, you know, cognitive degrees of freedom that you may not otherwise cultivate if you, you know, are, are sifted through or filtered through that, that traditional canon. So, you know, I actually think that, that um, many macro analysts who, di who didn't grow through an economic background are able to bring a unique perspective on macro that um, they just might not have been able to cultivate effectively if, if they'd gone through more traditional channels. So um, yeah, just w do you think that, would you agree with that? And if so, sort of how does that manifest in your own work, do you think? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, just quite, a lot of um, classically trained economists or, or uh, strategists, they're going to they're gonna rely heavily on maths and models, which I think it, it has their place, right? Models help give us a stylized version of the world so that we can try to make some sense of it. Right. Um, but at the same time, if, if you become a slave to the model, then you kind of become blind to, uh, you, you lose cognitive perspective if you become a slave to the model. So it's a, it's a fine line, I think, um, where acknowledge the model, respect the model, but don't be a slave to it. Um, so with that said, you know, my, you know, I start, to approach macro, not from an economics approach, but from really a political economy approach. It's really, I like to say that macro is really political economy and drag, right? It's, it's a function of political decisions that have monetary, economic, financial consequences. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a series of political choices, um, you know, and, and these these choices, their quantity, their, their timing, their implementation, you know, they determine um, the, the distribution of costs and benefits of these economic choices across society. So, so in other words, fiscal budgets are, are a function of political goals, whether these goals are financing, you know, the United States in World War II or great society programs of the 1960s. Um, and, you know, it, make no mistake, the, the U.S., the current U.S. budget is, um, let's say it's about, it's six, it was $6.8 trillion in 2021. We're still processing in 2022. But, um, I mean, that is the largest single economic entity on the planet. There, there's no greater entity than, than the U.S. federal government, the budget of the government. So it, it is the 800-pound gorilla in the room um, to understand the flows of the economy, you need to understand the principal driver of those flows. And I would say it's the, the federal government um, as a single entity, obviously the private sector collectively is uh, larger than that, but the, the single biggest economic entity is the, is the government. Um, and then I mentioned that $6.8 trillion figure, that, that's a staggering amount of money. Um, Japan's entire GDP is $4.9 trillion. 
Germany's was 4.2 trillion. So just, it is just massive. Um, and monetary decisions are equally political. You know, when the U.S. entered World War II, the Fed said they would pretty much do anything and everything they could to support the war effort. Um, um, and we also saw this more recently with the, um, the pandemic shutdown, right? Both the, the government, the federal, the fiscal authority, as well as the monetar monetary authority, um, use their collective powers to support the economy and avoid, um, you know, a ma potentially a massive, if not depression, certainly a massive recession. Um, so having that framework to start where you, you understand you have political actors engaging in economic activity helps with reading the tea leaves and understanding what are the potential goals, what are, what are, the, what, what are the political, what's the political end game for what the government is trying to accomplish. So that kind of sets the stage for how I approach um, macro first and foremost. Um, so at what level of granularity do you think it is helpful to analyze the political machinations in, in Washington? Is this, does this come down to observing the number of Democrats and Republicans that are aligned on different bills, um, assessing the probability of different, um, of different bills or different qualities of bills being passed? Um, or is it, is it a, a level of abstraction higher than that? How do you think about that? I mean, I think there's, there's space for both. I don't do the former. I focus on the latter, meaning I don't sit there and watch C-SPAN. I don't sit there and read the Federal Register. I'm not trying to understand what defense contractor is going to get funded for whatever project. Um, there, there are people who do that. They do it very well, and they probably make a lot of money doing it. Nancy Pelosi certainly does, as we know. Um, but, um, you know, that's not, my, that's not my jam. Um, I, I look at more of a... I think of more of a big picture um, approach. So getting back to the example of, um, you know, the fiscal and monetary support that was um, spent on the economy. Um, if you look at the first slide I have on, um, on inflation, right? Having, having an understanding of what was coming down the pike um, made the resulting inflation mostly predictable. I mean, we didn't, there was a lot of uncertainty. It's easy to sit here and look back and say, oh yes, you know, we, we knew this massive ramp and in, in, in C, in CPI was coming. It, it's easy to say that in hindsight, but I, I think it was not an unreasonable view to take if you could understand how much money was being spent um, during the pandemic, right? During the pandemic, 22 million jobs were lost in the first two months of the crisis. Um, unemployment went from a 50-year low in 3.5 of 3.5 percent in February 2020 to a, a peak of almost 15 percent in just two months. Um, so, with that happening, you know, they were looking at a black hole of real economic loss, and they 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 threw the kitchen sink at the problem. Um, between 20, 2020 and 2021, they passed, Congress passed three separate fiscal support packages total, totaling $5.8 trillion. 
it's about 20% of GDP, right? So when you have that kind of money, that kind of helicopter drop, and you have a compliant, supportive monetary authority, these infl- this inflation graph should not be a surprise. And so having a big picture political economy understanding, I think, can help set the stage for understanding what could be coming down the pike for the macro economy. So, David, so can, we, can, can, can I zero in on, on just that? So you just made a statement. It's, it, it's not unreasonable to expect inflation to go up. I mean, we're sitting there in 2022, I think. The zero hedges of the world have been talking about inflation <laughs> for 10, 12 years. You know, what was unique about that analysis, that political analysis that changed it for you from not likely to highly likely? Zero, the zero hedge doomer types focused on typically um, Fed balance sheet activism. So QE, right? So, you know, when, we, when QE came on the scene, in 2013, um, um, you know, there, there was a, a plethora, and it was just zero hedge. I mean, we had this, the, the top of the food chain of economists and um, market practitioners um, go against QE. In fact, I think it was in November of 2010, there was an op, a very famous op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, all this um, uh, quantitative easing would result in a potential debasement of the dollar. It would result in, you know, potentially an inflation inflationary supernova, right? So back then, the, the, the focus was solely on one side of the ledger, which is the, the monetary side. I think what was different was the fiscal side on this time. And I think the from a political standpoint, we um, we had somewhat of a lost decade with low, low to moderate growth, um, labor force participation shrinking, um, per- people permanently out of the labor force, um, and and I think they recognize that the austerity uh, programs that followed the, the global financial crisis were a big contributor to this and they didn't want to repeat this. So what made it different was the fiscal involvement and, and fiscal is a, has a much more direct, powerful contribution to the economy versus monetary in the short term. Um, a, a helicopter drop, you put money, money in people's pockets, they're going to spend it. You cut rates, you know, maybe to lower the credit card bill a little bit. Um, and that's, that's a, obviously a, a very simple um, uh, way to describe it, but it's pretty effective, I think. So just to answer your question, what made it different? It, it was the, the fiscal activism that we saw. What was interesting to me was how slowly the markets caught on to this impulse, because, I mean, as you say, we knew back in 2020 and 2021, the size of the stimulus bills, we knew that the treasury's balance sheet was going to be expanding with deficits by a um, this massive amount. But markets didn't really 
seem to begin to internalize the consequences until the calendar transition to January 1st, 2022. What do you, how do you account for that lag between um, knowledge entering the system of a certain thing occurring and the market's recognition that it matters? You know, I haven't given that much thought, but I think off, off the top of my head, I'd say, you know, in the context of the pandemic, where, you know, I'm just shooting from the hip here, I don't have data to back this up, but I, I'd imagine, you know, as the stimulus was getting deployed, people were scared. People, you know, people didn't want to spend money, perhaps. People didn't want to, you know, they were, they were probably hoarding money. I, I don't, I, mean, I, I don't have a empirical basis for making this statement, but just off the top of my head, thinking through this, um, to me, that seems like a reasonable explanation, but I, I don't have an empirical answer for you. Right. So understanding the government's goals and objectives is sort of a critical input to your, your framework, right? So how have you seen those goals and objectives shift over the last few years, um, maybe as a result of the pandemic or maybe as a result of a buildup in forces over many years that have kind of come to a head because of the pandemic and the resulting fiscal and monetary expansion. But what, what are you seeing now that's different about the, the government's goals and objectives relative to maybe what we are used to over the 2010s? So I, I, that's a great question, um, and it's very relevant. Um, I think we're, you know, the, right now we're 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 engaged. Our society is engaged in what's called a distributional conflict, right? And there's different groups that have opposing interests that our government and its agencies will have to arbitrate. And what do I mean by that? I mean the classic the most classic one is um the face-off between owner uh providers of labor workers and owners of capital right so when you have high nominal growth that is that is inflationary they're going to have diametrically opposed interests right if you're if you're a saver you don't want inflation so it's going to it's going to lower the present value of your investments if you are a worker Inflation may bite into you, but at least you have money illusion. What's money illusion? Your nominal income is growing up, even if going up, even if your real income may be declining. But we li we live in a nominal world. We have nominal debts. We have nominal fixed obligations such as rents. Um, so in the near term, workers will focus on the nominal. Um, so that that's one distribution of conflict. Another one is the conflict between creditors and debtors and it's the same dynamic if you're a if you're a creditor you don't want infl inflation right it's going to erode the value of your coupons your income stream if you're a debt if you're a debtor you want inflation because it's going to erode the real value of your debt right uh, we, we all hear stories about you know people back in the 70s that had these crazy high mortgages 18 percent seven you know whatever it was um and as interest rates fell um and we had a disinflationary process. Um, I'm sorry, let me back up. When rates were going up, if you had a fixed um, obligation, the real value of that obligation went down in an inflationary environment. 
So that's another example of a distribution of conflict. Um, so getting back to your, getting back to your, your um, question, we're seeing a lot of that now, right? How do we attack, and this is core to one of my, what part of my framework, how, how do we manage inflation? How do we bring down inflation without putting a lot of people out of work? That's, that's the classic distribution of conflict. Who's, who's going to take the hit for the inflation? Savers and owners of capital or worker providers of labor? Um, and that's, ultimately, that's a political decision, decision. Who takes the hit? And over what period of time? So that, that's a, a classic uh, political economy view to distribution of conflicts within the economy. And I mean, I think, well, would you agree that the prevailing view over the past several decades until very recently um, was that decisions should be made that if in this distributional conflict, we're going to make decisions in favor of capital. And as a result, labor share of um, economic prosperity diminished, right? Between call it the mid 1970s or, or late 1970s and say 2020, right? Would you say that that, that set of priorities is, is changing? Like, are we observing that um, on the political stage that there's a recognition that, that that's gone on too long and part of the political objective here is to rebalance or redress that um, disequilibrium? Uh, I mean, a hundred percent. You hit the nail right on the head. Um, the, the post, you know, after the uh, global financial crisis, the recovery was just awfully slow. Um, people that fell out of the workforce, once they fell out, they had a hard time getting in. Um, it coincided with peak globalization, offshoring. You know, you, you, had, you, you heard about the horror stories in the news about, you know, Midwestern towns being hollowed out, industry moving uh, overseas, communities being chewed up by substance abuse, deaths of despair. Um, I think this is somewhat amplified by social media. Um, and, you know, re regardless of what you think, I think the, the election of, of Trump, whether you like him or not, you know, the idea of bringing in an outsider to upend the status quo that a lot, a lot of populists were unhappy with was kind of the, the crowning moment of that, right? Where people just said, enough, even if we had to bring Donald Trump in, he's better than the other person because we're done with the status quo. Um, and I, th I think in hindsight, um, between the, the, the very slow recovery, the structurally low inflation of the post-GFC period, the political situation, I, I think when the coronavirus uh, pandemic hit, there was kind of a, a view of, we don't want to do that again. We, we don't want to do that again. It's, just, it's not good for society. It's not good for the economy. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that has a declining um, life expectancy. Why is that? We're supposed to be the richest, the richest, wealthiest, um, best off 
country on the planet, somehow our life expectancy is getting worse. So I, I think the, the idea of uh, trying to return some of the pie to labor was part of that calculus, was part of that rescue package that was put together. Here's our chance. Don't let, don't let a crisis go to waste. We're doing the helicopter drop. We're, we're doing what we didn't do 10 years ago, and we're going to go big. So I, th I think you're absolutely right on that point. And 10 years ago, throughout that, that journey from the credit crisis, I guess there's, was it a combination of ignorance and not recognizing what was necessary to be done to keep that middle class safe? and no lack of political will or a lack of political will to be able to execute on a, on a strong fiscal package? Uh, I mean, which weighed more there? Because obviously it was much easier to do this time around. It was like a brainer. Everybody was doing it. Might as well do it and do it hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was somewhat was a, a hangover of the global financial crisis, right? Because ultimately the, the global financial crisis was a credit. It was a, a credit a credit crisis, right? It was a big credit event, um, you know, obviously Lehman and Bear Stearns being the um, kind of poster child for that. But, um, you know, it, it was a widespread credit event. And typically when you have credit events, the, the, the orthodoxy has been austerity, right? Rodrigo, you're probably familiar with Latin America, right? Every time there's a devaluation, it's austerity. You got to protect the currency. You got to protect, you know, keep interest rates low, blah, 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 blah. Um, ultimately, these, these things are become self-defeating. We saw that in Europe. Um, in 2011 and I, I think austerity was the the, the reigning orthodoxy and, and and i think that the mindset was all right we 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 you know we were pigs of the we were pigs of the trough gorging on credit leveraging everything we could and that blew up in our face so we shouldn't do that again and, and i think that that was um that expressed itself in the politics and the policies that were that were pursued yeah, I want to pick away at you know, at this um, objective to redress this imbalance between labor share and capital share in economic uh, flourishing. Because, um, I mean, on the one hand, dropping money into people's bank accounts in the short term um, puts people on a on a better footing and on a marginal basis, it, it puts those with the least amount of current savings on um, an incrementally better footing than those who already had lots of savings, right? That, does, that, that extra money doesn't right. matter much to them, right? Um, but, I mean, I'm sure everyone in power had to know that via the Kalecki equation, eventually that entire um, budget deficit was going to end up as cash flow and on the balance sheets of U.S. corporations, right? So, you know, in the end, the capital class benefits from that that um, those deficits much more than than labor does. Um, so that's one point. The other is that the Fed, certainly at the moment, seems to be most concerned with the potential for labor costs to accelerate. Right. Another way of saying that is the Fed is most concerned that um, the labor share of the economy is going to grow in real terms relative to the capital share. Um, 
So how do you, how do you, well, first of all, maybe you disagree that that is the nature of the Fed's posture. Um, but assuming that you, that you agree that that is in fact the Fed's posture, how do you square that circle that, that, you know, governments are recognizing that we need to redress this imbalance and yet they continue to take action that, um, is trying to at least put a cap on the ability for labor to get a foothold. Sure. I mean, it's, it's a contradiction. I, I think there is a way to square the circle. Um, and this is, goes back to some of the abstractions I, was, I mentioned earlier, um, that even though I, I like to be an empiricist, I, I, res, I respect the, the abstract. So <clears throat> let's take a step back and, and look at the Fed, its reaction function, and whether or not they have a, a working theory on inflation. And that's debatable. So I don't know if you've heard of a, um, a Fed staff economist named Jeremy Rudd. He's a very senior staff economist. Back in 2021, he published a, a paper, and he just came out swinging. Um, he, he caused a stir saying that you know, the idea that household and business expectations matter for inflation was just bunk. It was theoretically shaky and um, um, empirically unsupported. I mean, this this guy is the top of the food chain. He, he advises the board, Jeremy Rudd, um, and it was it was one of these like, holy cow! He just he just said what everybody knew kind of moments. Um, and prior to that, I'm sure you've heard of Daniel Tarullo, a former Fed governor, who's now or. I don't know if he's still at Brookings, but in 2017, when he was at Brookings, he pretty much said the same thing. You know, he, he said he gave a speech at Brookings titled Monetary Policy Without a Working Theory of Inflation. And his basic message was that while policymakers have a working theory of inflation, it's not one that works well enough in real time to make good policy. Right. So, you know, in, in effect, the Fed is fighting with its hands behind its back. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't have a model. It doesn't mean they don't have a, a reaction function. It just means that it's, it's very imperfect. Um, and once you recognize that they don't have a working theory of inflation, you, you kind of realize that they're, they're kind of – you know, shooting in, shooting in the dark a little bit, making up as they go along a little bit. Not fully, but, you know, partially, right? And they got or they don't feel partially. like they're doing it, but th- in fact, that's what they're doing. They, they feel like they're hitting the bullseye based on their models, but they're, they're actually quite in the dark. And having random effects on the economy, especially in the last few uh, years on inflation, right? It's just a poorly yeah. working model. Correct. Um, so I'm um, just looking at my notes here one second. Um, so, you know, I, I like to, th- the, w- the way I approach the, 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 the problem set is, you know, I, 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 I'm not smarter than the Fed. I'm not smarter than the army of PhD economists that they, that they have. I think it's over 400 at the board alone. So I don't have an edge against them. My best bet is to try to understand them and understand their reaction function so that I can best gauge and manage my risks. Right. So, you know, um,
you know, I think that, you know, when we, when you go to at least undergrad, maybe not in um, uh, PhD level economics, in undergrad, you get exposed to a lot of um, simple, um, simple approaches that may, that really are, we just kind of take for granted and accept them as, as being true. You know, for example, um, the simple macro one-on-one narrative about M2 and the money supply um, being the end-all be-all of inflation. Um, that is, you know, one area that I like to debate a lot on Twitter because it just, it's not empirically, you know, the, the causality, I don't know if it's been established. I think we see M2 monetary indicators as coincident as, um, you know, what's, what's happening as a, as a function of these other policies that are being made, but it doesn't really explain how inflation actually works, how it, um, how it, how it leads to a, a, a price spiral. Um, you know, the, the other, um, you know, the, the other approach is that uh, credit and uh, financing have an effect on, on households and uh, an expansion of, the, of credit um, will cause inflation. Um, so I, I kind of find those, those propositions to be um, empirically shaky. And luckily, there's a, a 2020 paper um, written by two economists named uh, Slack and Watson, and their, their paper is called um, Slack and Cyclically Sensitive Inflation, and their, their finding was a big whopper. So most of the total components that make up aggregate price indices don't really move reliably, reliably with the business cycle. Um, the most reliable cyclical inflation components are not the ones that, you know, fit into the conventional wisdom of how the Fed might influence inflation. Um, and the, the bottom line is um, they found out that um, the most cyclically sensitive parts of the economy um, to inflation are actually rents and food. Um, now, we know that rents are affected uh, through nominal wages, right? Because you, you don't pay for rent through your savings, through your wealth you pay for rent through your, your current income. So as going, going back to the Fed's reaction model and reaction function, how they, they view the world, if the Fed really is looking at inflation, they need to look at the parts that are cyclically responsive, uh, responsive to, to inflation. And as I said, that's rents and food. Um, they can't, the, the Fed influences rents vis-a-vis the, the labor channel. Um, which is in turn is influenced through financial conditions. So going back to the question of how does, um, how, how is the Fed looking at, at, at inflation? It's really looking at the, at the labor market. It's really looking at wages and employment growth. That's really what they're looking at. And that's actually consistent with their, their dual mandate, right? The dual mandate is uh, stable inflation and um, maximum, maximum employment. Um, so that, that's really the reaction function. So the reaction function is dictated by 
a recognition? Do you think that this is widely recognized at the Fed or at least by those who are um, primary decision makers at the Fed that rents and food are the components of the consumption basket that require the greatest scrutiny and that um, employment is the biggest driver of rents, right? I mean, as you were talking about whether employment was the, was the primary driver of rents, it occurred to me that cost of capital must also factor in pretty heavily into the cost of um, into rents, right? Eventually, if you've got homeowners or building owners that are, or condo owners that are earning a negative um, uh, cap, cap rate, then you're going to see a shift in rents to, you know, uh, redress that imbalance, right? Rents are going to have to go up so that we get positive cap rates unless we're going to make it up on volume. Um, sure. So, I mean, so I mean, rents, rents actually follow um, um, house prices, which are influenced by the, the cost of capital, right? Uh, you know, the cost of capital drives fixed residential investment. Um, mm -hmm. so, and rents typically follow house prices with a lag of 12 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, that is a, uh, a factor for sure. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a tension between or, or a synthesis between um, labor income, being able to afford higher rents and nudging rents higher and the ability to build more buildings and or homes to rent which is a function of the availability of credit and the cost of capital. Um, and somewhere in the middle there, you get, there's an equilibrium that is found, but at the margin, um, labor's ability to spend more on rents is what makes the rent component of the consumption basket so much more sensitive to cyclical factors. Um, absolutely. And that, that's that was actually the, uh, the, the premise of the uh, of the Watson paper. In fact, on the next slide, uh, Rodrigo, I think you've got the uh, control there. Um, you know, there's a link to the, the you don't have to link to the paper. The paper is actually god awfully boring. But um, you know, that's their kind of the, the, the money shot quote there. Prices are determined largely in local markets such as housing, and prices at restaurants and hotels have large cyclical, cyclical components. So. Um, you know, as the Fed tries to manage the inflation cycle, what they're really doing is managing the labor cycle. Um, and with, with, you know, with that in mind, if you go to, you know, the next slide, Rodrigo, um, in the um, February, I'm sorry, the December summary of economic projections, you know, the, the Fed came out and said, you know, they're targeting 4.6% in, um, in, in U3 unemployment uh, this year in 2023, right? So right now uh, we're at 3.5%. Uh, so just back of the envelope math, assuming constant labor force participation, a 1% increase in unemployment is about 1.5 million um, lost jobs. Right. That, that's, that's a big deal. And what, the reason it's a big deal is because it's potentially, you know, recessionary. Um, you know, first we got the, uh, the Somme rule named after Claudia Somme, 
And, you know, the, that, that size job loss, you know, signals the start of a recession when the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate rises by 50 basis points or more um, from its low during the previous three months. So if the Fed is um, targeting that level of increase in unemployment, they're effectively telling us, they're maybe not saying we want to throw the economy into recession, but they're basically telling us labor has to, has to pay up. Labor is going to take, take a hit, maybe not the hit, but labor has to make a contribution to this, infl- to this inflationary issue. I think the, the problem with the Fed's forecast um, is that every time we've had 1% increases of, in, in unemployment, we've had 12 episodes in, um, in the post-war period. In 11 of those episodes, I'm sorry, in every single one of those episodes, the economy went into recession. And in 11 of those episodes, that increase did not stop at 1%. Unemployment kept on rising. So going back to the Fed's reaction function, going back to how they're approaching this problem, they are putting the brakes on labor in their attempt to put the brakes on inflation. That's really what they're doing. Okay. So this is interesting because I think we're hitting on um, your assertion that the Fed's reaction function is actually um, primarily focused on labor market tightness or maybe even the unemployment rate. Um, So if they expect that they're going to need an an unemployment rate of 4.6% by the end of 2023, in order to bring inflation back in line with their targets, that if they begin to perceive that their current rate trajectory is unlikely to achieve that unemployment rate because the labor market is much more resilient than they had expected, then presumably they're going to have to go higher and hold rates higher for longer in order to be able to achieve their unemployment rate target and by proxy their um, inflation target. Is that, am I describing that? hundred percent correct. So, so, 2022 was a boom year for employment. Um, let me look at my um, notes here. Yeah, I mean, we hit a, what, seven-year low or something in, in, in U3 in December? Hold on one second. I, I may have misplaced <laughs> the slide. But um, um, no, it was December. It hit 3.5 in December, according to your slide. It did, correct. Yeah. It came down, I believe it was 3.9 at the beginning of the year and 4.5 million jobs were created. I think that I misplaced that slide somewhere. Um, but but the, the bottom line is, despite a the most aggressive tightening cycle in 40 years, the labor market boomed. 4.5 mm-hmm. million jobs, 3.9 unemployment down to 3.5%, right? So if, if we and face we're like we just troughed, right? Like we, we just hit the I mean, all-time low. So the, even the correct. second derivative is not is not we, even moving in the right direction. We hit we hit pre-pandemic levels of unemployment, which is also three point five in February of twenty twenty. So so those jobs have been recovered. 
um, if you, you know, if obviously if you adjust for labor force participation and you know, people are exiting the labor force, but for the, for the most part, you know, we've recovered. Um, so you, you had a bull market in labor and a bear market in financial markets and a slow, a, a, a slow expansion in the real economy. So if we extrapolate that to 2023, which may or may not happen, then that makes the case of higher for longer, for sure. Um, and I think what lends uh, credence to that thought is that over the pandemic, people ac accumulate around $2.1 trillion in excess savings, right? We're down to about 950. So let's just say, let's just use round numbers. We've gone through half of the excess savings that were accumulated during the pandemic. That is dry powder for the economy, for the consumer. That could extend the bull, the bull market in labor, which will keep the Fed on its hiking path. I'll add something, I'll add a dimension to that too, because I've been really hearkening on this point as well, right? Is just the size of demand deposits. But what is also important is where those demand deposits are, or rather which cohorts of society it sits with, right? Because um, there was a time about a year and a half ago when the you know first quartile by income had the largest amount on deposit at banks in the history of the series, right? Um, and over the last 18 months, that first quintile has whittled it down and they're now beginning to, to draw down on credit availability, right? Meanwhile, you know, those at the third, fourth, and fifth income quintiles in the sort of middle to upper income levels um, are still sitting with huge excess savings, huge excess demand deposits, right? So what I've been what I've been sort of hypothesizing is that the middle class and the rich tend to spend overwhelmingly on services, or at least their marginal spending is on services and less on goods. And therefore the, you know, six or eight months ago, there's a lot of talk about where we should begin to see inflation shift to services over goods, right? Now, are we, I know we have seen some of that. Are we still seeing the services that one might expect to be um, more likely to be spent on by those in the Q3, Q4, and Q5 income categories being a lot more uh, persistent in their price raises? Um, and then do you see any of that trickling down into labor market dynamics? Uh, so the answer, the answer is um, we're definitely seeing a shift from uh, goods to, to service, uh, spending from uh, goods to services. So I know retail sales got uh, printed uh, earlier and there's a lot of, you know, doomer sky, uh, uh, doomer uh, skies falling type uh, commentary on Twitter and in other media. Um, but I think that that, covers up some of the, you know, some of the underlying dynamics of this aggregate spending numbers shifting more towards more, more, more towards services. 
Right. So Can retail just... sales doesn't really capture services spending very well. What's that, Rodrigo? Get... Yeah, I just want to get your view and what you think the Fed's level of understanding of the lags between a tightening cycle and earnings and the tightening cycle and its impact on labor. I've heard numbers being dropped like, the lag on average is from the moment they start tightening, it's 12 months before you start seeing earnings uh, shift and around 18 months where you start seeing a labor impact. And not to mention what you guys discussed, which is the amount of savings that there is, that's probably going to extend that a little bit further. Right. And, and so if you don't have a good grasp of that as a policymaker, you could easily make mistakes as you start seeing earnings go down and take your foot off the pedal before you've actually you know, done what you wanted to do in the labor market. So where do you think their understanding of those lags are and, uh, and how does your framework? So that's a good question. If you go to slide number uh, six called, uh, it's titled U.S. Nominal Domestic Spending Year Over Year. Um, Or seven, let's see here. There you go. So that's basically nominal. These are my proxies for nominal spending. It's nominal GDI, nominal GDP, and um, consumer, consumer uh, producer, I'm sorry, PCE expenditures. So um, you can see we were, I think, I think the graph before that one, the chart before that one, that's the, the indexed um, chart. Prior to the pandemic, you, you can look at the slope of how um, nominal spending was increasing every year. And after the pandemic, you can see the steeper slope. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, those are indexed numbers. If we make those numbers in the following slide, year over year numbers, um, you see nominal spending just go through the roof. Right. So, why is nominal spending important? Because nominal spending is highly correlated with, with um, market earnings. So going back to the timing, we're going we're gonna to keep going. Uh, the Fed, in its, with its rate hiking cycle, is going to try to bring those lines back to their historical trend, back to a nominal growth target of 4 to 5%. Right now, based on um, um, December PCE was 5.7%, um, real growth somewhere between 1% and 2%. I would ballpark nominal, nominal spending right now at around 7%, give or take. So the, the, these figures are, are, are quarterly, last updated um, third quarter. So we've come down from there. But let's just say we're at 7%. We've got at least 200 basis points more to go to, in, to decrease nominal spending. So in terms of the timing, I, I think it's really going to come down to at what rate can the Fed, how aggressively can the Fed slow nominal spending? And that's going to translate into <clears throat> when we see revenues and earnings on the S&P 500 tip off or roll over. So I think it's, 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 this is a stated policy objective of the Fed, going back to our macro framework of understanding the Fed's reaction function, understanding the strategic objectives. They have made it very clear that they want to slow inflation vis-a-vis the labor market 
and that's going to impact nominal spending and drag nominal, nominal spending down. So, um, in a long-winded way, long-winded way, I'd say, um, you know, we're st- we we are still have a ways to go before we see um, earnings roll over, just because of the strength in nominal spending that we still have to um, slow down. Right, and I guess that the question really for me is, if that overshoots on the other side, right? Because that's an aggressive slope down now that we're seeing, right? You're saying we're going to get down to seven next month. Uh, the tightening cycle began maybe early 2022 in, in real terms, right? So we're kind of hitting that 12-month mark. If that, they that's over, right. If they overshoot and they get spooked, like there's an op, there's a possibility here that they get spooked before the labor uh, numbers come in, right? Before they actually hit their their mark on the labor side. And could they get spooked and and stop their hawkish stance earlier than they should is, is, is a thing that's in the back of my mind anyway. And I think it's, it's, I think it's a high probability. Here's why I didn't include it in the chart pack, but on Twitter, um, yeah, I've been, I've been following what's called, you know, OER, um, owner's equivalent rent. Going back to our, our, our macro framework of of understanding the cyclical impact of rents on inflation Owners, owners equivalent rent is basically, you know, it's it's a, um, it's it's kind of like one of these economic abstractions like R star. It's not something that we really see. It's something that we we make up to try to have a stylized view of the world. Because I, I as a homeowner, don't pay rent. I pay a mortgage, but that is still a, um, a, a part of, out of my monthly income stream that I, I need to pay. So the Fed basically comes up and says, okay, we, we're gonna somehow try to approximate what homeowners pay in rent, even though they're really paying a fixed contract known as a mortgage. Um, in any event, OER is about 40% of core CPI. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, rents follow uh, home prices with about 12 to, month, 12 to 18 month lag. So home prices peaked in... I believe it was July 2021. So that flow through and a decrease in owner's equivalent rent is set to start right around now. In fact, on one of my Twitter postings, uh, Larry Summers had a graph of his model on OER showing that this is really going to accelerate um, starting in February or March of, of this year. So Going back to nominal spending, which is obviously takes into account inflation, um, if this kickoff in OER really t- kicks in, then we could see a short-term drop in inflation that slows nominal spending and spooks the Fed. Yeah. Now, what if that coincides with with um, sustainably resilient labor markets. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is that we've had about 1.5 million excess retirements um, post-COVID, right? I mean, we, we know demographically we can model pretty um, closely the expected number of retirements every year. We, we've had about 1.5 million more retirements in the last uh, 18 months to, to 24 months than expected. So 
there's just a lot fewer people in the labor market. And there's a question about whether they're going to come back or when they're going to come back. And the other thing is they tend to be um, more experienced, higher wage earners. Um, so how do we, you know, what if the labor, uh, what if the unemployment rate is persistently low? It hovers in this 3.5, 3.6 range for many more months. And at the same time, we do see some of this, um, you know, slowdown in OER and, and a couple of the other bigger categories of the core CPI basket. How do you think the Fed's going to navigate those conflicting views? They're going to be in a real pickle is the answer because they will be forced to acknowledge the pullback in nominal spending, right? But that will create a feedback loop where easing financial, easing financial conditions will reignite um, spending. And we will see that primarily in the, um, in the mortgage market, right? So, you know, the housing market in 2022, right around June, July of this past summer, when mortgage rates started going parabolic, mortgage, the mortgage market pretty much froze up. Um, back in September of last year, uh, you had record high you know, contract cancellations. You had um, 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 declines in um, home purchases. Um, and then right around October, mortgage rates started to come back down. They've come back down by over 125 basis points. And that's been very stimulative um, to the economy, right? We're starting to see um, more uh, mortgage activity home activity pick up again. Um, and so that's going to create this, this feedback loop in that market, which will be very supportive. Um, and it's going to be hard to navigate the answer. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be especially supportive of employment, right? So, um, you know, this is, this is where I think things get tricky. I also, I mean, we talked already about excess savings, but, um, you know, why should we expect the, the year over year rate of growth in consumption to, de to decline substantially while there is still, while there is still such a huge amount of excess savings and therefore excess uh, purchasing power by U.S. consumers? And the answer is we, we shouldn't. And that's why, you know, I mentioned that you know, that, that, that level of excess savings. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, you know, I'm, I myself am conflicted, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not married to any one outcome of a soft landing or a hard landing. I, I'm, I'm trying to be as data dependent as I can. Um, and, you know, you, you've got this potential for an OER drop off, a, 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 pull, a pullback in nominal spending. But if the excess savings can serve as a bridge to get us over the hump, so to speak, then that, that, that strengthens your soft landing case. Um, and I, I, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. I, I really don't have an answer. Um, the, you know, I, I know what, what to look at though. Um, I, I know, as I said, I'm looking at um, 
the housing market, particularly OER and its impact on inflation. I'm looking at the labor market and its um, impact on nom nominal spending. Um, so while I don't have a crystal ball, at least I know which direction to look for before getting slapped in the face. <laughs> An interesting question that I've been asking um, people in my circle is, would a soft landing be necessarily beneficial for equities? And, and the reason why I ask is, you know, for the economy, a soft landing might be um, a drop off in inflation, right? Inflation sort of slowly comes back down close to target. Unemployment stays tight. And, but neither of those dynamics give the Fed a catalyst to cut, right? So, you know, it, it could be you get a couple more rate hikes and um, then we just stay at whatever, five or five and a quarter percent for a long time. Is that a necessarily positive outcome for, well, you know, Well, rates go to two. If rates go to two, I don't think they're going to leave the real rates of return at 3%. I think that the economy couldn't sustain that, right? So they'd have to cut if they're actually no, no, no. hitting on. the inflationary hold on, hold on. rate hike. We had rates of, you know, 8%, 6%, 5%, 4%, all while inflation was in the, it was around 2% for decades. So, so right? it, it, goes, it goes back to my view on nominal spending, right? And the, the rate at which we... we um, return nominal spending to its historical trend. If it's done over a long period of time where uh, revenues don't, you know, the, the hit is spread over a longer time for, for firms, then it could be okay for equities. If it's done quickly, if there's a rug pull in nominal spending, then equities will take it on the chin, hands down. Well, there's even two if, dynamics at play, even right? If the economy doesn't go into a, even if the economy doesn't go into a formal recession, if that rate of decrease in nominal spending uh, takes place over a short period of time, then I think there's a, there's a high probability that equities take it on the chin despite an economic soft landing. I guess where I'm going is there's two dynamics to play. One is the risk premium and one is earnings growth, right? But certainly a soft landing would be, would be beneficial for earnings and cash flow. But high rates is a negative for multiples, right? We're, we've got the S&P still trading, I think, the last Thing, time I looked at, at at a PE ratio of a CAPE ratio of like twenty seven, right? Yeah. So, um, if we're if we're going to hold rates at four or five percent going forward and and not at zero, then what kind of multiple would we expect on U.S. corporate earnings? Would we expect them to stay near twenty seven, or would we expect them to work their way, their way back to some number that is more in keeping with a 5% risk-free rate and something like an 8 or 9% cost of capital. So I think it has less to do with the absolute level of interest rates and more to do with the volatility of interest rates. I think, mm -hmm. I think the volatility of rates is the primary driver of risk premiums on the fixed income side, which in turn spill over to the equity side. So um, off the top of my head, I don't have the answer for you on that front. But I will tell you that it has less to do with the absolute level of rates and more the volatility surrounding 
the policy making process, policy outcomes, and um, pre risk premiums in fixed income markets. Um, speaking of risk premiums in fixed income markets, if you scroll down to um, um, slide number six, 15 or 16, Probably the next one after that, probably. There you go. So that's the real risk-free neutral rate. It's a mouthful. Um, it's basically um, a real rate adjusted for risk premiums. That's kind of a, a pure view, in my opinion, a cleaner view into what's happening in fixed income markets. So despite the pullback in nominals, that we've seen in the past couple of months. Despite break-evens, I think if you go about the slide before that, so you've got uh, two slides before that, you got break-evens coming down significantly. Slide after that, you've got five-year, five-year, four inflation expectations pretty much stabilized in a tight range. Um, the real risk-free rate continues to go up. Th that is you know, the, the, a, a cleaner view into what's happening is into the rates market because it, it takes out the impact of, of risk premiums. Um, so this is what I'm watching as one of my proxies for um, what, how, risk, how risk premiums behave going forward. Can you so, explain what yeah. goes into this calculation? What, what is this? Yeah, um, it's pretty. It's all. All it is is um, so that the New York Fed publishes what's called the ACM um, term premium model. You can go on their website and find it. Um, they published the term the term premiums. I did some simple algebraic manipulation, uh, stripped out um, um, the term premium from the real rate to get this uh, get this figure here. So all it is is the real rate minus the term premium. And the term premium is calculated using a trinomial model that the eggheads at the Fed publish every day. Um, okay. And so you're proxying term premium for risk premium then? On the fixed income side, correct. Yes. Gotcha. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a, there's a credit premium in fixed income and then there's the, the yeah, equity. Term, this is the term premium. So this is the complete, I mean, according to the New York Fed, this is the, the complete premium set package. So that, that embodies inflation premium, it embodies term premium, liquidity premium, um, um, whatever other premium that they deem appropriate or relevant. So right. Um, right. I'm, I'm looking at this as a, a proxy for um, um, it, it, for for what I was mentioning earlier about the importance of um, rate volatility. And um, and risk premiums. And so, the higher the rate volatility, the low, the higher the risk premiums, and that spills over into equity markets as well. I'm sorry, there was some, I missed that. The higher the volatility, the higher the risk premiums, and the higher the the equity uh, risk premiums as well. It spills over into the equity markets. Is that what? That that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, we if we see more, if we continue to see um, uh, inflation, I'm sorry, uh, interest rate volatility. Um, elevated, then I don't think we get the relief and risk premiums that we're looking for.
Yeah, I mean, risk premia are already very high still, right? In, in equities and credit, right? I mean, it's, or sorry, very low rather, right? I mean, the, yes. the, the two-year rate is already um, higher than the dividend yield on the S&P and the credit spreads are almost back to where they were pre-COVID, you know, it's, or back in 2021. So um, risk markets are saying, you know, where there's no risk in this market, right? They're not pricing any risk in this market. So it's, uh, I guess I'm just wondering what the bull case is for equities here. If we don't see rates go quickly back to zero and alternatives like safe instruments end up being, having a higher expected return than equities um, at a fraction of the risk. Um, you know, I, I just think that that other asset classes are going to compete for equity bid uh, in, in this kind of rate environment, unless the Fed goes, you know, pivots pretty aggressively and we go back to the two, two to zero percent um, rate environment that we were in before. Is that is that something that you anticipate something like if we were to sort of look out three to five years from now? Are you expecting rates to kind of normalize at the abnormal levels we've seen over the last decade? Uh, the, the answer is, uh, so I'll take a step back um, to respond to your comment about uh, risk premiums. So, yeah, risk premiums on the fixed income side have compressed. They're, according to this model, as of yesterday, um, minus 78 basis points. Um, and, you know, we saw them uh, just as recently as, um, you know, back in uh, September, they were kind of at a, at, a minus, at a minus 40 handle. So we, we have seen this kind of flight to safety, a strong bid uh, for treasuries, and that's coincided with the pullback in the 10-year. Um, now, going back to your other question, you know, what happens in three to five years? Honestly, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I, I don't. Um, and I, I think it's it's very hard to, you know, which we're still trying to figure out what happens to nominal spending and when it happens. Um, and I think with, without having the answers to that, side of the puzzle, it's really hard to make a case for one way or the other uh, three to five years out. So, so this is a good transition for me. You know, whenever we speak with, we speak about macro, there's a lot of data points. Every macro analyst has their own set of data points and, you know, 20% of them are new to me every single time. And, <laughs> and you're trying to kind of make sense of what they're saying and where they lean and what their time horizons is. So I guess we never ask you like, what do you trade in? First of all, that that you that you use in order to to express your macro views and what is your time horizon? Like, what? How is it that you put? How how does the, the rubber meet the road with your framework and what you invest in? Yeah. So, um, and this kind of goes back to my ambivalence about making a forecast for three to five years out. Um, so, day to day, I'm not a day trader. Um, I use this macro process for really determining how much how much leverage I want to use, how much risk will I use. Um, I implement a series of um, systematic trading strategies, uh, mean reversion, um, some trend following. So that's kind of that's you know it's somewhat generic, um, rules based, uh, weekly and monthly trading, but. The f I use the framework to determine my risk budget. How much is this on U.S. equities on global futures contracts? Like where uh, U.S. U.S. equities primarily? Yes, um, that's U.S. Just equities. Okay. The reason is they have the most data points to to data mine. 
um, foreign equities, I guess developed Europe is data rich, um, but US equities have a lot of um, data points to use for simulations and uh, strategy development. So and is this on indices or individual equities that you? Uh, both, both indices and in individual equities. So again, the, fr the, the, the macro framework really comes down to trying to manage my risk. How much, not just leverage, but also time horizon. Um, if I'm ambivalent about um, uh, what's happening in three to five years, that also affects asset allocation for some passive accounts that I manage. Right. So, so you're looking out, you're, you're data driven, you're, everything is systematic on your trading side, but how much you put pedal to the metal is dependent on your macro view. And right now, Correct. Oh, and, and you're looking, you're looking out over the next <clears throat> few months as you make your uh, leverage decision. Correct. So for example, a good example is, um, back in, uh, March of last year, um, I was some, some of my strategies were down between two and 6%. After, after March, I was in cash, uh, primarily mostly to mostly until August where I, I did some small discretionary trading, but the, 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 the volatility environment was not really conducive to implementing the strategies that there was too much whipsaw. So understanding that we were in a hiking cycle, understanding that the Fed was going to go after labor, would, would try to slow down nominal spending, would have some impact on, um, on equities, rate hiking cycle, housing. That to me was a signal to say, okay, I'm not gonna override my systems, I'm just gonna hang out. And unfortunately it was summer so I couldn't snowboard, but um, not a whole lot of trading was done uh, last year for that reason. But the, the, you know, I had a modestly down year last year, but you know, for the most part um, came out with the skin on my back with no problem. Um, and th that is entirely due to my framework for understanding and managing risk, uh, when to trade, when not to trade, how much leverage to employ or not to employ for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I guess these the the answer to the questions about what where the natural equilibrium rate is, um, whether it's in the zero to two range or the three to five or 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 five to eight range, is going to dictate whether you know which sectors of the economy, which asset classes are going to um, dominate over the next several years, right? So, um, um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's, well, it's a not, very challenging environment. Well, not, not only that, but I, I think it, you know, I, you know, I think last year the 60, 40 portfolio got shot in the head. Right. So, um, you know, that's going to impact how mm -hmm. portfolios are constructed going forward. Right. If, if the, the covariance matrix, if, if, if bonds don't provide the same level of, you know, diversification, um, then that's going to affect, have huge impacts on portfolio construction. Yeah, sure, um, but I guess the point is, if you if 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 your if your anticipation is that inflation is going to moderate and it and over the next year or two it's going to go back into the box, then there's no reason to expect bond and stock correlations to um, stay high, right? They're more likely to revert to their correct pre-pandemic um, Goldilocks relationship, right? Sure. If, if, if we can, if we can get, um, 
inflation to moderate without putting the economy in a in a um, stagflationary type situation. I mean, I think the, the probability of that is is um, the answer is I, I don't know. I don't know, and that's why I stick to for, for trading purposes. I stick to, I stick to systematic trading because even though I have a macro view, I think it's very you know going back to this whole notion of formal economics training. I think it's very easy to get anchored into a narrative, and I think maintaining some level of ambiguity um, keeps me from falling into a narrative trap of drinking drinking my own Kool Aid, and that's not a position I can afford to get into. Yeah, on that, that, I mean, the macro is such. We can certainly a, agree. <laughs> <laughs> macro trading is just such a difficult thing when you when you come up with a framework, a narrative, you get married into it and you act on it and it doesn't go your way if you don't have any sort of systems behind it i've always found it you know i really, mean it's i don't even know where you anchor to right so i mean it's I, always, I, I, it's I, always I, interesting to see what the actual systems that macro traders implement to safeguard themselves against their own um undoing and their own narrative sure i mean i i i take some small punter type discretionary bets but these are you know these are lottos these are things i can walk away from these are right. you know this is you know pizza and beer money kind of thing um you know i don't take i don't take Bragging serious bets. yeah um yeah I, I, don't, I don't take serious bets on on narrative because it's it, it is what it is <laughs> got yeah. it great yeah. well this has been very elucidating david thank you so much for um sharing your framework with us and thanks um, for having me and helping us to understand the potential evolution of the economy and markets over the next uh, few months it's um going to be very interesting to watch i think we're all yeah. aligned on that um so yeah with that yeah, where Rod, can we are find you, you david uh yeah, is there, right. what's your twitter handle to get some more information for people to get to know you some more yeah, it's uh, David at David at Pinebrook Cap. David at Pro, P Pinebrook, Pinebrook Cap. Pinebrook Cap. Correct. Awesome. Okay. And a special thank you to Michael Harris, who is has been in the chat, but also made the introduction to David. And um, so, um, kudos and much uh, appreciation in that direction as well. Yeah. Thanks um, all for coming live. Make sure you. you like and subscribe. And we yep. shall see you on next Friday. We've got Andy Constant on live next Friday too. So, uh, oh wow, so great! More macro. All right. That's right. Then, I'll, I'll, then in that case, I'll, I'll, I'll have a beer with that one. <laughs> yeah. There you All go. right. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, have a Thanks, weekend. guys. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global 
Explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve-Masterclass. Dash